Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new podcast format. Um, it's kind of experimental, so definitely let us know what you think. But I'll be co-hosting this with Misha Saul, um, who works in tech investing, but on the private side, um, in, I guess, private, more private equity than venture capital. Um, welcome, Misha. Mike, I'm 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 pleased to to be having a crack at something new with you. I think we 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 we've been chatting for a little while, and um, I found our conversations kind of fun and and go in all sorts of places. So um, really excited to to try something new and to to chat about uh, markets and and investing with you. I think one yeah. neat thing is that we come from quite different parts of the market, where you're you're quite public markets focused, and I'm in um you know private private equity you know, tech-focused private equity. And so, you know, we've kind of got similar interests, but um, but quite different backgrounds and, and ways of looking at the world. Yeah, very different angles. So um, what did you take of Adam Newman's new venture where he raised $350 million from Andreessen Horowitz and Mark Andreessen himself led the round? So it was the biggest investment they've ever made. Um, and he's clearly making a statement by doing it himself and writing a public note. Um, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think your last comment's awesome. Like I, I noticed that as well. He clearly personally, like Mark Andreessen rather than you know Andreessen Horowitz, the institution, wrote a piece saying we are investing in Adam Newman and he's taking a stand. And I absolutely love love that. You know, I think when the news came out of the last day or overnight or whenever it was, um, you know, I think the natural reaction is mocking. Like the guy literally got a t- Apple TV show called We Crashed, named mm-hmm. after you know his debacle of of, of an adventure, and um, and so I think you know the natural reaction has been kind of mocking and and going you know why is one of the world's greatest venture capitalists kind of um, you know backing this nominal um, failure or fraud or, or whatever other words they use, and honestly I totally get it. And I do not understand the confusion at all. I'm not super close to the Adam Newman story beyond We Crash, to be honest. I just watched We Crash, which I thought was, um, was a really well done TV show. And I found it striking, like a real narrative violation, how well Adam Newman came across in the show. Everyone around him comes across awfully. His deeply narcissistic wife, um, you know, his idiot co-founder, his idiot, you know, kind of bumbling investor uh, base. Like everyone comes across poorly. He comes across as a superstar. He's loyal. He's driven. He's deeply charismatic. You know, he's 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 really pushing it forward. And I look around now, and I, you know, obviously they had a, a range of issues and restructures and whatever. But I look around now, and WeWork still seems to be around, and not just around, but like yeah. a really massive presence. Um, in the world and that scene and he seems to be an unambiguous success and so now you know you've got this you know deeply charismatic founder everyone's poo-pooing kind of you know you know throwing all his cash into a new venture as if you wouldn't back him as like a top top investor especially when it's got that contrarian um, streak like would you back travis out of uber i'd back him every day he's like transformed global transportation like it's totally wild like it makes total sense to me yeah and you never know the the, the deal could have been structured quite favorably as well you know it's probably pr- preferred equity you know so the 350 million on the one billion dollar valuation if they're buying real estate or anything he's probably got first you know security over that first 350 million um and i guess somebody like adam newman like he's the sort of person that can build a business where there's offices in every major city he's also the sort of person who can 
you know, lose a lot of money. Um, and he's very much the sort of person that can somehow raise a lot of money. Like I'm sure we all know eccentrics um, kind of tick a lot of those boxes or have a lot in common with, you know, Adam Newman's or, or, or what is public kind of perception of how he approaches life and, um, and his energy and all those kinds of things. Um, but what's really exceptional is he must be one of the best fundraisers ever. You know, yeah, he's, he's able to... one of the best fundraisers ever. And, you know, he's, um, who else would you back to have a massive swing at a massive market? And to your point, it's not obvious. It's like a real tech play, you know, like, I mean, mm. you know, A16Z seem to be kind of, you know, investing um, all across the investment life cycle, investing in public um, listed stocks now, um, you know, as, as well as, you know, um, you know, all sorts of investments. They're just too big to be kind of focused on on seed mm. investing. And so you're right. Who knows how this is structured? Um, but, you know, who else is well-equipped to tackle a massive market? And he's basically done it before in an adjacent space. So makes total sense. Mm. And then I guess the question will be is can he actually, with this new approach, um, actually make more than you would otherwise in a building that you bought and rented out? Because if he's raising $350 million at a billion, that's like $650 million of value that's most likely going to him um, just for structuring that deal. So that's another curious thing about his character. He's just so amazing, um, depending on whose perspective, certainly from his perspective, at like structuring huge equity value creation moments for himself. You know, he's just conjured $650 million out of thin air. Now that kind of like, uh, what do you call it in um in private land? <laughs> that, that like goodwill, that like extra bit above the actual asset value. Um, that is the bit that you're effectively paying him for. Can he generate enough out of 350 million to be worth 650? Um, and I think it's tough in residential, you know, it's it's so you've got some level of communal living, so you're gonna have to take up space that might otherwise be rented um and make that the communal area. You might be able to charge a premium, but I imagine people are actually quite price sensitive as well. Um, the target market for that kind of thing is likely, you know, your 20-year-old, mid-20-year-old professional. Um, it doesn't sound like something that a family would be interested in, you know, beer pong and 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 table tennis and that kind of thing. Um, certainly families would want their own space. Um, so that he's created $650 million of value by by with this new idea. He'll then have to generate that. He'll have to do that with the disadvantage of having to set aside significant um, parts of, significant parts of the real estate these communal areas, you know, it's an open question. It's got a lot in similar. I mean, WeWorks like that, you know, the communal areas are amazing, but they've got that at the expense of extremely tiny um, Spartan private offices. Um, I've definitely spent a couple of years in WeWork uh, in the past. And it's amazing how small those things are, but the communal areas are amazing. And my guess is he'll probably do something similar here. You'll, you'll have like a very small room, um, but then all that space will go towards creating a communal area. But then he'll then have to charge more somehow to make that that building that is or that real estate is le leased out worth more than it would have been otherwise. Otherwise, kind of like the criticism of WeWork, there's no real business there. There's no economic value. You, you know, I, I I really genuinely like don't have a view on the underlying economics. I don't have a firm even sense of of the vision he, he's trying to build. And like property is a massive market, and there are you know like there are infinite number of like excellent property investors who who will kind of t take a view that's more more valuable than mine i, I do um really love the kind of social um 
overlay you know i've got i've got three kids you know i've kind of had a winch to you before around um you know the kind of atomized living um and and, and the kind of um you know the the disappearance of of the village and, and the sense of um community and the challenges that poses for kids and so you know if he's if the thrust of his business if like i i have no idea but if the thrust of his business is you know can we create something um to kind of replicate more of that communal living um and that that kind of helps both on, on a rental front but then the kind of um you know increases social cohesion and family support if that's a thrust of it and and you know like if that's like an you know I, i've joked to you before around you know building haciendas in australia or like you know big family villas and you know i kind of romanticized about that but if he's doing something along those lines i think it's super interesting and you know i'm glad someone's having a crack but that's I, an interesting idea yeah yeah um, I, 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 mean, I know like I, I reckon you know you and i are based in sydney um you know uh us is a massive cultural exporter and the kind of finance capital of the world but we should definitely um uh you know try and um talk about australian issues uh, uh, as well given you know i reckon every every idiot in the us is going to be talking about um uh, adam newman like i know i know we i suggested speaking about adam newman <laughs> what, what, what do you reckon should we should we talk about um australian issues yeah i mean what was the biggest thing that happened lately in australia i guess there's there's the realization that scott morrison swore himself in as various ministers <laughs> including like treasurer when he already had a treasurer without telling the treasurer now I, I don't know enough about the mechanics to know how how important that is like does that mean he has or he had all these secret powers he could have then done anything um, at his own will which is kind of creepy when you think about his you know his, his religious ties and his kind of like his 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 allegiances to other communities and um uh, I, I, what do so you think I, I, I'll, I'll take the opposite view to that. So I think your reaction is really interesting. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like you. I haven't really paid that much attention to to what's going on, um, but I've just seen these kind of headlines and kind of red, red snippets. I, I think the purpose of these headlines and these snippets is to create the exact reaction you've had. Like, you know, there's nothing really specific. No one really understands what's going on, but you're kind of casting it into this creepy, dodgy light. You know, you're, you're kind of implying without going there that, you know, he had some sort of, you know, um, uh, evil plan um, or there's some sort of coup at the end of this or some sort of power consolidation. In practice, obviously, he's the former prime minister, 12 or 12, 24 months ago, you know, he did some secret, um, you know, some secret procedural stuff and took on a bunch of portfolios that he didn't even talk about. Obviously, he didn't do anything. Mission, that's no, weird. No that one even knew about it. But that's the thing. Sign yourself in. I, I know what you're I, saying. There's a lot of, like, times when people kind of, like, G things up a bit um, and create the headline. But swearing yourself in as a minister, like, that just seems quite... Quite a big all, all I see <laughs> to me, this reads like, um, you know, politicians kind of, you know, wolves circling, you know, it is, it's, you know, it's, it's the libs and, and labor kind of um, settling political scores and kind of kicking out the, the former prime minister and kind of journalists wanting to feel important and, and, and kind of getting amongst it. And no one's actually got like a specific accusation aside from like, it's a bit creepy and weird and, and, and the like. So I, I mean, I, again, I'm not really close to it and maybe there is, something you know fundamentally dodgy underlying it and so i want to you know i'm not i'm not too sure but it, it's like it's a lot it's a lot of sizzle and not much sausage there's like a lot of smoke and not much fire and it just it just smells like a political stitch up mm, i think we'll find out because i think even so there must 
it, it's unclear why he did it. His kind of explanation doesn't really make sense. Other than if, other than if, if he thought in the epidemic he was going to be overruled by his ministers and he wanted to overrule them, um, and he had more powers to do that. I mean, that's kind of. But then that is quite a big deal to do that secretly to take all those powers um, while there's public ministers. I don't know. We'll we'll just have to find out. I'd be surprised if there's like some surreptitious pathway to you know effectively you know becoming dictator of Australia or whatever. Which which is like it's not really what you're saying, but it's kind of the the implication of all these headlines that he's suddenly going to um you know overthrow the government or something. And I just think that's like so ridiculous. It just feels like I think that's I agree that's too far, but overruling ministers the public ministers and then yeah. doing that because you've secretly sworn yourself in but what would really happen like right? if that happened like it just like i don't know enough but it through. must have been a, it must be something right because he's done yeah. it so he's done it for some reason so there must be some advantage of that and my guess is it allows him to like overrule his ministers in a pinch if he had to um so, moving on from so, politics though, Misha. yeah um there were like in my space obviously there's been a huge sell-off which we can talk about um Obviously, we're kind of at the pointy end of things. Um, but one of the things that we've all, all been wondering in the industry is like, when will, you know, real money buyers, when will private equity step in and uh, and strategic investors and start buying up companies that are down 60, 70, 80% that are massively undervalued by any metric, whether it's balance sheet or income or cash flows. Um, we're finally starting to see that. So Tom Bravo, there are bids for companies like Avalara, um, SailPoint in the US. We saw that this week with a bid for Nearmap. Again, by Tom Bravo, a massive um, US tech private equity firm. First of all, do you know, do you know much about Tom Bravo? I only know them from these headlines and the fact that they're they're hu- they've got a huge amount of dry powder. Yeah, I'd, I'd say um, I'd say you know uh, know no, a bit about Toma as you know as well as um, you know probably their their, their best known uh, peer in in the US, Vista. Um, they've basically been um, the trailblazers in terms of software and technology. Um, private equity investing. So, um, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm an investor to probably an Australian uh, equivalent. Um, so it, it, they're definitely folks who uh, who um, who we kind of consider uh, potentially competitors, although although they, they probably look at, you know, somewhat bigger um, companies and, and look to deploy um, b- bigger checks. So um, certainly there was a headline around around Nearmap. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not across... Um, Either really near map or, or 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 what they're up to there, but it is certainly interesting. Um, you know, I think um, one way I've seen investors describe the landscape in the U.S. Obviously, there's been a massive sell-off, and very keen keen for your view, given as you just said, you're kind of at the pointier end of of technology, you know, listed technology and investing, and so you're acutely aware of the of the sell-off over the last twelve months or so. And um, but one way that U.S. investors talk about listed markets is, is effectively a a private equity put. In the US, um, you know, the their markets are so deep, um, their private markets are so deep, that is, and, and that um, yeah, at some point if 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 stocks get too cheap, then um private equity investors effectively um take them over. Um so I think we just have slightly less liquid markets or a much more smaller market, obviously, in Australia. That said, I think um, you know, it's it's not a secret to say that um there is a massive dislocation in terms of valuations in Australia between where public markets have, have got to across a range of sectors as well as um you know verse verse uh you know private founder or or vendor value expectations um so um it's not really surprising to see a lot more um listed market market activity mm. I mean, didn't see what what impact that has on the market I mean think about like all the big booms and busts and it was definitely happened this time around is there's a lot of um 
companies listing. In this case, a lot of them went through SPACs and that effectively sucks up capital. And what does that is, you know, if, if equity people are trading, fund managers are trading at zero sum, but if a new company comes out, issues equity, cash goes out of the market effectively into their into their balance sheet. Um, and the flip side is if a private equity firm outside the listed market raises, you know, $100 billion and then buys a bunch of stock, um, obviously the stock goes to them, the cash goes back into a, a listed manager who if their mandate is to be 100% long, then has to take that and invest that. So it'll be interesting to know if that has a big impact. Um, typically private equity, like usually they coincide with like market tops, because often they're they're buying. That's when you have access to finance. That's when everybody has amazing track records. That's when they do really big deals. That money goes into the market and kind of creates the top. This is obviously a different kind of environment where you're wondering if these real money buyers are actually going to create a low. Firstly, by expectations, you know the fact that people are willing to invest now. And I do think we're there now. I do think the dust has settled. It's like a kind of bomb went off over the last, you know, six months. Um, but now we're kind of quite deep into this. We know which companies are performing, which companies are well are not. And there's really no reason for a high-performing company to be trading at, you know, 10-year valuation lows if it's growing faster than ever and, you know, developing new business lines and things like that. Um, so the combination of those things, I do think it's quite relevant now that private equity buyers who obviously they're not, well, I guess there's some element of them wanting to sell to somebody higher at a higher price, but really they're, they're the ones that are on the hook for the cash flows, for the investment, things like that. It's really relevant that they're coming to the market now. Yeah, I think I think your earlier point around kind of private equity activity coinciding with, with market tops, you know, I, I kind of agree with that. I don't really think it applies so much here. I think, um, you know, uh, there's just a lot of activity across markets um, uh, ahead of the top. And I'd say, um, you know, private equity investors, along with uh, many other kinds of investors, are sitting on, you know, large pools of, of dry power and available capital. So they haven't been kind of caught off guard, um, kind of holding the baby at the top. Certainly some assets, no doubt, and, you know, some valuations, you know, some assets were acquired valuations that would be kind of more painful rather than less kind of going forward. Um, but I, I'd say on balance, um, you know, private equity firms probably across Australia and US markets are excited about, about buying opportunities, given what you've just described. You know, I kind of, Frankly, I kind of shared, it's always hard to know. I kind of share your your view that um, it feels like the dust is settled and uh, and the like. I have to say, that doesn't feel the case across all markets. You know, two markets that have been surprised at how cautious they've become um, are VC markets. You know, I'm obviously not, not a VC, but kind of, you know, um, you know I interact with VCs and, and founders. And I'm surprised at, at how... Um, much their activity has slowed. It doesn't really make sense to me. I would have thought there'd be no impact on new opportunities and, and willingness to deploy. And the second, um, the second market I'd be surprised by is, is credit markets. Um, you know, obviously there's a ton of market, uh, you know, a ton of money out there. And I have noticed that um, debt financiers have pulled back somewhat. And I just would have thought they'd be way better off investing now, um, you know, knowing, you know, with materially lower valuations, um, you know, and, and either putting in small licks or, or or on more attractive terms than, than 12 months ago at, at the top. And so there is this kind of general institutional herd mentality, I, I think, because um, on, on the fundamentals, you would have thought um, some of these markets would be um, either agnostic or um, even counter-cyclical, but they're all kind of correlated, strangely. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I know a little bit more about um, the venture side than the debt side. 
I think like even a, a year ago or even from for the bulk of the last decade, you know, the 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 IPO market was open. Um and there by the end of it there was a pre-IPO market and a pre-pre-IPO market where you had a ton of liquidity. You knew you knew a deal could get done at a price. Um generally a pretty decent price and an uplift on, you know, where things were in a prior round, provided there'd been some kind of progress. That's all shut now and it's shut because the equity market's shut, which is like the end result. So I can see why that makes it hard as a venture investor because you've the the exit is it's not even just the exit like the the ability to kind of sell your investment either because you want to or because you need to is just kind of gone that end market is there so it's very it was much more straightforward before when you if you had it's much more straightforward when you have the confidence that you can if a company hits its goals it's going to be able to list um, right now you don't have that in fact you know that a company couldn't list. Um, if, even if it was doing very well, unless it was doing exceptionally well um, in today's market. So I think that's part of the hesitation. The other thing is, you know, with these, I think what's kind of, I think one explanation is what's happened um, is as the cycle lengthened over the last 10 years, people got more and more willing to pay up years and years in advance. So Rivian will probably go down as one of the, um, one of the, the most prominent stories of this, you know, $100 billion company. Um, I was speaking to a person at Morgan Stanley, analyst in, um, in the US who, who did the valuation and wrote the report. Um, and he was basically, look, you can value it. And he was like, yeah, you absolutely can. You know, if they hit these numbers over the next 10 years, you know, you can definitely argue a $100 billion value. I don't know whether you could argue you get a, uh, an acceptable return on that for the risk. But you know, investors at the time were very, very willing to price things based on where they'd be in 10 years. And then what basically, in, in a way, it's kind of like, I won't have my cookie now, I'll have more cookies in the future. It's like that kind of, um, that idea of how much you're willing to wait and that swung all the way from, you know, a cycle high of 10 years plus all the way to like, I don't even care if you're going to be profitable next year. If you're going to show me numbers today, I'm going to, your stock's going to be down 70, 80%. And so we invested in the life sciences. Um, and there, you know, there was that famous stuff that everybody knows now is that the record number of companies traded for less than cash. And the reason for that is kind of that, it's the same cookie idea. It's like, why would you invest today on a trial result in two years? you know, that might, may or may not successful. It's like a probabilistic um, outcome of getting 20 cookies or do you just want to keep your cookie today, you know? And then every investor went all the way from saying, well, I think there's a chance this thing will be successful in 10 years. So you can have my cookie to being like, absolutely no way. You know, there's no value on anything in the future. Um, and that seems to have steadied now. But you can see that in the venture market where obviously all the all the businesses are like that, they're all kind of on these very long-term um, time horizons. Uh, I think investors are mass just just reluctant to do that, and it's not entirely irrational. Obviously, the people that would do best will almost certainly be the ones that make good investments here at these levels, both in public and private markets. But the same way you could rationalize the ten-year outcome, you can also rationalize that companies are worth actually very little easily. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll um. So just on those two things on IPO markets and 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 uh, um, you know Rivian and other examples, I think on on IPO markets, you know I, I don't I really don't think VC investors get a lot of comfort from uh, from IPO markets being open. Um, certainly not on the way in to companies. You know IPO markets are fickle; they're kind of open and shut, and they're hot and cold from time to time. And actually, in Australia, there are very few venture-backed IPOs, um, you know, uh, like I'm sure they're, they're, they're out there, but I, you know, they're actually, um, you know, there aren't, 
superstars, you know, most super successful venture Australian venture companies are, are not IPO, IPO exits. But in Australia, or, they're lists. In Australia, growth companies list. You know, if you're, yeah, that's right. You know, Australia's got this weird little um, spivvy tech market, which kind of creates some some really successful firms and there's a whole bunch of like random firms and, you know, Australian ASX is surprisingly um, a warm place to a lot of tech companies. And so, so VCs, I actually don't think they really look at or understand or care about IPO markets. Um, and because the time horizons are so, so long that like they can't make an investment today with a view as to what that exit is. They just want to like mm. invest in really big companies or companies that, that, that will get, um, that will get really big. So, so I, so kind of capital markets being open or closed, you know, I, I don't think that really affects them. I think one, one way in which they are affected, um, you know, some companies just fundamentally need access to capital on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, milk run is, is, is a good example or, or Uber in the early days, you know, might've been a good example where if you kind of start off with negative gross contribution, um, you know, like you, like the plan, you know, by design, you're losing a ton of money for a long time, even like a best case scenario, assuming everything kind of works. And if capital markets just dry up and you know, investors suddenly um, get cold feet halfway through that, well, you're, you're dusted. Like yeah. you need to get money from somewhere. That's, that that comes into it. So when I was with the pre-IBO market and, and whatever the layers before that. So if you, let's say you've got a capital intensive business and you're a VC fund, you now need to, because you can't count on uh, the next round being there in one, two, three years, because those markets are shut and a lot of the people who are active in those markets have lost a ton of money um, and won't necessarily be raising new funds. Um, that whole outcome's unclear. So you need to be able to back yourself to fund these things the entire way. So I think that's, that's right. where the calculation gets difficult. It's like, right, we're going in this round, but we might have to be in every other round to the future. Can we really see this through? And that I'm, I'm, that makes it hard. Yes, but- like, yeah. But uh, just just on that point, but um, yeah, so so yeah, so they'll they'll lean away from capital intensive businesses, which frankly VCs have been anyway. Like there aren't that many examples of really capital intensive businesses that VCs have been trying to bag. And secondly, um, you know that that makes sense at later round. I, I like a VC, like it's like a seed round. You know, um, assuming it's not super like by design capital intensive, you know, they'll be backing to to fund big companies anyway. And who knows what capital markets look like in three years? I, I don't think any VC company takes an, an explicit view on that. They probably take a view on the founder and their ability to raise um, well. Mm. Um, but it just you know, pu- public markets are, are, are very fickle. On, on your point, I thought it was interesting. You, you kind of spoke about Rivian and like some of these seem really obvious. Like you know, like like um, at, at the time, you know, and, and maybe. Maybe they, they shouldn't be because maybe, you know, uh, an obvious short, um, you know, can do really well over time, kind of like in VC land. But I just I think it's a public markets thing where sometimes they can take a really um, patient long term lens and act almost like VCs in the way you describe. And then they can just switch off, whereas VCs don't really have that luxury. And then you'd be thinking like VCs all the time. And and, and, and that's all they do. Mm. I mean, liquidity is 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 usually, unless you're really strict about it, um, can be damaging. So another piece of news that came out is the hedge funds filed their uh, their basically said their positions and what they'd changed in the United States at the last quarter. So the last quarter was like 
easily one of the toughest quarters I've ever been through. And I'm sure many investors would say the same. Um, there's investors with 20 track records who made huge moves um, in that quarter and had probably the worst quarter of their lives as well. These are people who invested through like the GFC, through the original tech rec. Um, and that was like, you know, we, there were a lot of companies down 30, 40, 50% or more that then got cut in half, half again. Um, at the same time, what made it so challenging, like really tough is that, you know, most of these companies are now reported and we now know a lot of them are doing fine. You know, they were doing fine in the worst quarter of their, um, in some of their trading histories where they were already down, where they halved and, and went from being down 50% to maybe down 75% or 80%. That was really tough. And we now know kind of what, what happened because the market is, you know, made up of people. You don't know what's going on at the time, but you can usually see who's been buying and selling. And obviously all the trading goes through a small, relatively small number of trading houses and investment banks. So they've got a pretty good view on who's buying and selling as well. But by looking into these hedge fund filings, you can see literally who was acting when. And we know that, for example, Tiger Global has sold out of a lot of their stocks. You know, you look at their filing and, and it's basically all sells. And you know, things like, for example, they sold completely out of Carvana. You know, Carvana's now bounced from 20 to 54. So over almost almost three times, they're two and a half times since one July, um, or certainly since the low. So it's interesting to see these. And this is an investor who's been around since, two, founded the firm in 2001, um, was an investor long before that. So the original tech boom and tech crash, um, and then picked that particular quarter, um, which is the worst quarter ever probably to be selling, <laughs> worst quarter ever for these on a, so on a multiple basis, um, picked that quarter to liquidate all these positions that, you know, in Carvana's sake, for example, must have been, you know, 10 times or more higher just seven or eight months ago. So it was a really challenging environment, but, and it's really interesting to see that. And, you know, I think about the big growth, like who are the big people writing big checks? Like obviously there's hundreds, thousands of funds, you know, kind of like we're obviously one of them, we're playing in this space as well. But, you know, you think of like SoftBank, you think of Tiger, you think of D1, you think of KOTU, you think of um, ARK. They're the ones I would think. Now, do you think of now D1? There's, there's a few others, but the D1, you know, publicly moved to cash probably halfway down, maybe. Um, it looks like Kotu has done a similar move to Tiger. Um, both Kotu and Tiger didn't bounce in this recent equity rally. Now we, now we know Tiger has done what we all suspected they did. Um, again, we knew their returns were flat in July, which was a really strong month. So they must have done something like this. Um, who else was there? And SoftBank has just liquidated huge portfolios closed um their their growth public growth investing um like literally made huge and these these are people that are writing enormous checks at almost any price um these are the people that funded we work for example um and then the only person left out of those is, is arc who's just being consistent and i think most of those people would consider themselves far better analysts than kathy would um it's hard to know with kathy because she's kind of like one of those people that she writes she her if you read her analysis Often it's very much written with the audience in mind. It's very much written to get headlines, you know, coming out with a price target. Her, her firm was, in my view, like really got its leg up by coming out with a price target for Tesla, you know, an order of magnitude 10 times higher than anybody else's. So and every hedge fund manager in the US was like, I'm short Tesla. This is my Enron. I'm going to make a name for myself. And that all be wheeled out on TV. And then when the, the, net, when the anchors were like, okay, we need to fight a bull. Who are going to go to? It's Kathy Wood, you know, charming, way above everybody else, got a huge profile, um, and it's an extremely competitive industry. So she cracked in. So it's hard to know. Like, I would never presume to judge her analysis based on her public statements um, and her public work.
But I, I have a feeling out of all those funds, I reckon she'll end up winning just through sheer consistency, just through staying the course um, through this period. But that's, it's almost staggering to think like from where Tiger was a year ago and how richly valued all those companies were, you know, they famously came here and wrote a huge check to Milk Run six months in. Um, to see them liquidate at that moment, <laughs> like of so, all the times you could liquidate a portfolio. And, and, and what's, because I reckon there are two lenses you can put to that. I'm keen for your view. One view is that they basically crystallized all their losses at the bottom and it's just a disaster. <laughs> the other view is that it's too early to tell and this is a bear market rally and that, uh, you know, there's there's a cliff um yeah you know, ahead at some point so um i don't know i don't know what's your kind of takeaway from all this look it's a good point i think um oh, first i should add like we don't actually know what happened inside could they could have been margin called they could have had leverage and had to liquidate they could have had redemptions they could have sold out for that we don't actually know the actual reasons but it does seem to be since the fund flatlined when the market rallied they must have been big net sellers look it's, i think it's just common sense i mean like if you're gonna if you're going to take a long-term investment of you and pay high multiples for things, you cannot then sell after a huge sell-off. And if you're going to do it, you've got to do it fast. So I think D1 probably won't regret their move because they missed out on this crazy volatility and there'll be a market for their fund. If, let's say let's say the low was in, and I think there's very good reasons to think the low was actually in. Um, if the low was in and they missed it, they'll still be able to say, look, we're very responsible stewards of capital. We sold out and we've slowly waded back in first with Microsoft and Google, then with like, you know, whatever it is they do. I think that's like, that that will work. I think for Tiger to come out and say, look, we we we, we allocated like tens of billions of dollars um, at the top of the market and then sold six months later when they were down 70, 80%. And, and by the way, it's their selling that creates it. So that's like a really important point. It's like them hosing their portfolio and it's not just Tiger, it's everybody else who looked at the world and saw the same thing that they saw um, and then liquidated at that moment. That's what creates the low. You know, if you took out Tiger's tens of billions of dollars of selling, I bet you you'd have a very different quarter. Um, my guess is that doesn't make, that's not good investing. Like you just know, um, obviously, you know, we've made our own mistakes over this period, but one thing that can kind of save you is let's say we have caught this rally, you know, we're up 40% or something from the lows, admittedly a very deep low. Um, let's say there is another round of this and, you know, there's, there's people who think there will be, um, we will still probably just be able to hold and, you know, it probably just delays a, a significant recovery by three to six months. You know, we're far enough into this that we know um, which companies are able to perform well in this environment. You know, we had a pretty heavy weighting to anything consumer related. It's the idea of customer love. Now, this has been the worst consumer environment in perhaps 40 years, arguably. Um, certainly the fastest rise in interest rates um, and one of the sharpest rises, uh, maybe the sharpest rise in commodity prices, if you consider that, you know, energy was negative. Um, so it's been the worst possible time for consumer. But, you know, all that stuff could change in the future. You know, if there's another round in one to two years, you could find yourself in a very different environment. And we know that the companies that we own are growing and performing in the current environment. Um, there's another oh. one. So you go. There you go. Now, I was going to say, like, I just want to, it was really, I don't want to criticize anybody in this environment, whether it's Tiger or, or anyone, because it's just so tough. So you had this sharp rise in inflation, sharp rise in interest rates. Now there's often that kind of, sometimes that coincides with rallies. Um, and when it doesn't, the rallies come after. So it's very hard to sell on those. If you sell early, great, well done. Um, but it's very it's very hard to sell 
um, in those periods. I'll give you an example. So in 1980, 1982, that was when interest rates were famously, you know, 14, 15% plus, much worse environment than today's, substantially higher interest rates, um, substantially higher unemployment, a real impoverishing recession, um, and a bear market that lasted the better part of two years. Um, but it wasn't that bad. Like the equity index dropped 27%. Now, small cap growth, the kind of stuff we do, I've no doubt that that was down at least twice that, you know, 50, 60, 70%. But the end of that, um, equity, equities recovered the entire drawdown in four months. So let's say if June was the low, it'd be August, September, October, November, say. And that's also common to basically every other crash. Like 1987, very quickly recovered. 1990, very quickly recovered. COVID, blink, and re you recover. Um, 2016, few months. Um, it's very common for these, these sell-offs to happen. And before you know it, um, they've recovered, even in environments that are much worse um, from a recession, inflation, rising interest rates um, than today's. So it's very, it's 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 easy in hindsight because you know what happened. It was very hard at the time to know, actually, you know, there's going to be another minus 50% leg down. And I guess what really happened is, you know, there was a war in Ukraine, energy spiraled out of control, inflation printed out of control, and that caused a whole species of investors um, to hose their stocks um, that they only that they were that they were happy to value at very high multiples, you know, six months ago to hose them down seven down to 70, 80, 90 percent. Um, that seems to be what what happened. Um going forward, like I think uh having kind of it's you can understand these things much better in hind when you when you can look back and see the data. Um I kind of miscalculated. I thought I thought what would happen, I knew we we're in trouble, but I also was keeping these other examples in the back of my mind, how fast things can recover. And how ultimately, like, if you sell stocks down 30, 40%, you're going to lose all your money really quickly. Like, it's just the wrong approach. Um, and to basically to dodge the extent of the drawdown we had in our sectors, that's what you've had to do. You have to be like, okay, everything's down 30, 40%, but I think it's going to get worse. So I'm going to liquidate, kind of like what D1 did. And you would have missed that, that worst of that dip. Um, but... You know, now a lot of those things have changed. So inflation was flat over the last month. Um, PPI, which is, you know, another measure of inflation, has actually been declining for a couple of months. Um, the whole situation could reverse quickly. I mean, who knows? Um, but I do know, like, your question, like, was it right for Tiger to do that? My guess is if they were selling at that moment, like, you know, if it's summer or winter, right? You don't necessarily know if it's spring or autumn. It's, it's harder. I feel like you know you do have some view of the seasons and that's one thing I'll never, it's not a mistake I'll ever make again was being fully exposed, you know, at the peak of summer. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask but, you on that. You know, I, um, you know I, I'm in kind of private markets land and, you know, I sure dabble in public a little bit or whatever, principally in private markets. So um, the pain, the visceral pain in like a public markets crash, I just feel less um uh, but just psychologically i imagine that's a that's a very different place for you so i'm very keen to to hear how how that's been in the last 12 months but before mm -hmm. i ask that like i i am you know I, I, on your point about kathy wood just kind of stronger for longer you know i think um you know i i think there's something very charismatic about um you know kind of doubling down you know I, we came up with a name you know double or nothing for 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 this uh for this podcast kind of taking the mickey a bit but um you know i i i do i have been thinking a lot about those personalities um that just go you know double or nothing um and you know one person who uh, i had exposure to early in my career 
indirectly was was Nathan Tinkler, you know, and he bought um a mine, a coal mine off Rio for like I don't remember exactly, but called three hundred million dollars, um mostly debt funded. Okay, so like scaryish place to be. And then you know eighteen months later, whatever he he IPO'd it for you know one point two billion dollars. Um, and then you know he kind of kept going and kind of buying horses and whatever. And I think he kind of blew up. Okay, because that's the pathway that um I think it's like a personality thing, kind of. You know, at no point is he going great. You know, um, now I'll stop. Now I've made a you know cheeky billion dollars. Happy days, because that's just not. He wouldn't have got there if that were his mindset, and that's not who the per, who, what person um, he was. And I think um, if we look at history, you know, great historical actors, um, you know, who were you know either deeply disruptive or positive, um, you know, had 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 the same mentality. And I think it's it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, like, like, like a Kathy Wood, if, if she kind of cut her losses and took that tiger view, you know, she may well be relegated to the dustbin of history and just a footnote in the kind of tech bubble, you know, leading up to 2021 or 2022. Um, and her only pathway is the, is the kind of that initial call she made on Tel Tesla making some outlandish 10x call relative to market. And she's just putting it all on black again. And, you know, in the event she's right, she's like super right. And in the event she's wrong, well, she'd been, you know, relegated to history regardless. So I think there's something, you know, I haven't nailed it, but um, yeah, those kind of characters fascinate me massively. But, um, but let's talk about your experience of the last 12 months and kind of, you know, you're, you're at the real pointy end of, of tech. And so you felt, you know, multiple compression, you know, mm. significantly, even as potentially some of the underlying businesses have continued to perform. What was that like? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, actually, your point about Nathan Tingler is a good one. Like, let's say he's coming up and saying, look, obviously coal's roaring now, but like coal's smashed. I'm going to buy, I'm going to borrow 200 million bucks and put $10 million of equity in, and we're going to buy a coal mine. I, of course you'd back that guy. I would love to do that. Like, you know, like I, in fact, it is wild yeah. to me. I'm looking around, you know, like I was reading this book on energy transitions. There's not a single energy that, um, you know, as, as we've kind of gone solar or moved from timber to coal or, um, or nuclear or whatever, um, you know, there's not one that's kind of declined after a, a, a transition, and we're all pretending that coal's gonna gonna disappear, and it's not, and it's not gonna disappear, except no one can buy it, so all the valuations are deeply compressed. And so, I would absolutely love to back someone, you know, maybe not a tinkler, but someone who can kind of go around and and hoover yeah. up these coal mines and kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, at, at a yield of like a hundred percent or mm. something ridiculous. Well, the other one is the other example of that is actually Masayoshi Son. So he was got absolutely wiped. In the first tech wreck. And I think it's it's a, it's it is a sign of how tough this was. Kathy Wood, Chase Coleman at Tiger, um, and and Masayoshi Son, they've seen all this before. So it's not that they weren't inexperienced, they didn't know what could happen. Um, but, you know, he famously lost almost everything and made it back with a bet on Alibaba. But the key thing is he he put 20 million bucks into Alibaba um and then wrote it into hundreds of billions of dollars of value. How do you do that? You actually believe in the long term and you actually stick. And when things look shaky or, you know, there's risks or maybe, you know, communist, like the Chinese politi political mood sours or you don't know what's going next, he just held on and made hundreds of billions of dollars. So there's very, very, very few people who can do that. But I can almost guarantee you the people that do will do have that long-term view and can sit through these things. are going to have periods like the last one where the entire mid-cap growth space, you know, had its worst, worst year in 20 years. Um, and, you know, uh -uh. places like healthcare was the worst ever. 
Um, I'm really in two minds on that. You know, I think on the one hand, I'm a big believer that, um, you know, we live in a, like a non-deterministic world where, you know, um, you know, I have deep respect for those founders who kind of go out and forge the future and it's super non-obvious and they make an absolute moths or a hu huge impact, whatever. But like, you know, it, it, there's such a selection effect when you're kind of looking at it. How many Matoshi-san's kind of punted all on, you know, put 20 million bucks mm -hmm. into X that we've never heard of that kind of disappeared and we've never heard of them, you know? I I, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not saying yeah. it's luck, it's not luck. You know, I think some someone like Elon Musk is a great example who kind of talks a lot of crap but ultimately builds unbelievable things and kind of puts his mouth, m money where his mouth is. But, um, but we also just don't see all these high conviction failures that um, the kind of little of the landscape. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. Now, obviously, if there's 100 Elon Musks trying to do new things and one Elon Musk, it's obviously good for all of us that, you know, people yeah. are willing to take those risks, both the investors and the um the people themselves. So tell um, me about your 12 months. Yeah, 12 months. Look, it wasn't wasn't a huge amount of fun, to be honest. It's probably about as much fun as eating crushed glass. But <laughs> I'd say, like, there's a famous saying that, you know, b bull markets kind of start down and end up. And then bear markets start up and end down. And that's what it was like because you'd go to bed, everything was up. You'd wake up and everything's just been smashed again. Um, that's kind of like I knew in June that something was something was changing. So I was like, I'm going to bed and everything's starting down and ending up. You know, all of a sudden I can sleep and I'm not getting like these. <laughs> you know, that was, I, I could I could sense that shift from bear to bull. And obviously it can shift back anytime. But I do know at the moment the price action is very bull markety and has been um, since mid-June you know, in the sense that dips have been bought. Um, yeah, look, it was, it's, an, I think the one thing I'm annoyed about is like, I feel like I didn't do, our, I feel like we we lost more than we should have. We could have, with our strategy, lost less. And then I think ultimately our strategy, backing fast growing companies with great economics, um, with amazing customer bases, in most environments will outperform almost anything else, you know, because you've got companies 50, 100% bigger in size. Um, this was just that period where there was like a 90% multiple collapse in everything um, at the same time that some parts of some industries that we invested, like e-commerce, for example, you know, really declined on tough comps. Actually, they were, all those companies are still growing, um, but really growth slowed down. They're two years in one, a year of slow growth, and then extreme multiple contraction. Combine that with a few biotechs that traded to cash. You know, it's just, I, feel, I, I wish we'd lost a bit less because I feel like we didn't quite do our strategy justice. Um, and the saving grace of that is, you know, the opportunity set here is immense. Like it's, it's, it's wild. You probably won't see, it was so indiscriminate. And in many ways, like the institutional quality names fell more than, more than the kind of spivvy SPACs, you know, a lot of Tiger um, stocks that Tiger owned fell more than companies that are worth a fraction less. Um, and that's obviously because there was a huge amount of institutions that, um, that decided to sell out in a quarter. So obviously like there's a few simple things we could have, changed to have done a lot better like we should have had more pharmaceuticals less biotech because that was one of the better performing sectors we should have had more 30 40 percent compounders rather than stretching just for the 100 plus um, we'll make that change fortunately a lot of those companies a lot of the best companies still drop 50 55 percent um, and they're all firing so i'll give you one example so disney uh dropped uh i think it was 55 percent high to low most of that in the last kind of um six months and they're having some of their parks are processing record revenues and profits. Um, 
based beating their pre-COVID records. They've created they've a subscriber business that is bigger than Netflix in two and a half years. This means that like something like 150 million plus people are getting billed by Disney. Like cash is going straight from their credit cards and debit cards into Disney's account, you know. And then last in I think it was about a month ago, Disney announced they're going to increase the price on ESPN, their sport channel, um, by 43 percent. And then in the latest results, they said they're going to increase Disney Plus prices by something like 38 percent. And in the lowest tiers, they're going to put in advertising, start making money that way. So you got a company that's firing on all cylinders, that's raising prices in their parks, um, that is developing business. A line of a business line with 150 million plus customers that is putting through 30 and 40 percent price increases, and it's down 55 percent. And that's also what made this period so challenging. And when we talk about look, the fundamentals are going well. There's I can give you like 20 examples of that, and obviously some of them there's things like Shopify which we can talk to that have stumbled a little bit, um, but um, there's plenty of companies that have just gone from strength to strength. And still got the fifty, and that was Disney. Like Disney was. Let, let me ask you about that. I mean, on a fundamental level, I think it's hard to be kind of bearish on, on on Disney in terms of you know on underlying basis. It's kind of got a track record of kind of pumping out these creative hits, which is just a a very difficult machine to build, and it's got this kind of hundred year old brand you know there's definitely magic there but it's hard to kind of talk about investing in it you know outside the context of value and valuation and and even kind of talking about relative valuation you know i kind of hard to i find it hard to talk about that how do you think about valuation is that the way you kind of think about it what your entry valuation is because it could be an unbelievable business at too high a price you're not going to make you your money unless you believe you know it's going to mm. kind of get to you know 100 times revenue or 50 times revenue or, or, or whatever. How do you think about, about valuation? Well, the problem you've got is um, the problem you've got is to create that business line of 150 million paying subscribers that you're able to raise prices on um, by 30% plus um, and then pump advertising through it. To, you can't do that without spending money. So you could talk about like EBITDA multiples and they did reach extremes, you know, definitely like kind of, um, how do you put it? It wasn't quite at all time lows, but, you know, certainly way below where it was in the past. I guess EV sales is probably a better one just because it takes away that that loss making aspect just for this. And you're saying it's like trading below where it was at the COVID lows when all the parks were being shut down. Um, but the reality is to make that business line, to get that 150 million people paying you know, I guess it'll range now from 10 to 15 or whatever it is, dollars. That's like, that's hundreds of millions of dollars of cash flow coming in. You have to invest, you have to grow, and that's going to knock, you know, substantial amounts off the EBITDA line. Um, and so you could then look at it and that's, that's what the market's doing today is saying, well, actually, you're not making as much money as we thought you were. You know, yes, profit is up, um, but, you know, you're spending a billion dollars doing this, um, you're investing in that. Um, and so we'll mark you down by that you know, we'll take that off of your value. But how but do you do, it? do you, to kind of look through and go, you know, I reckon based on this investment, you know, they're going to get revenue to X and, you know, EBITDA to Y over, over this period of time. And so based on, you know, a look through multiple, um, you know, you should end up with a share price of X, which means I'll make my return given this entry price. Is that kind of how you think about it? Or do you think about it differently? This is this is a bit different because you've got that you've got extremely profitable business line, um, a very profitable media business, and then this new loss making direct consumer business. So we're confident that you know with 150 million, let's say they get to 200 million plus um, subscribers, 
every dollar price increases now 200 mil a quarter that flows straight through the bottom line. This was the kind of calculation that got people very excited about Netflix. Um, in Netflix's situation, actually that's open. You know, it got much harder for them because in the last few years there was this streaming boom um, and all of a sudden that price increase became much harder and people kind of pulled their content out and created their own platforms. Um, typically, usually, and I'd be interested to know how you would look at it, but the easiest, the easiest example, just because it's simple, is something like a software business. Um, and EV sales multiples have, and in many cases, rightly going to come under a lot of heat lately. But you do know that like a, what a mature software business looks like because there's a ton of them and a lot of them, not a ton of them, there's there's many of them. And, you know, they do sustain 9, 10, 11, 12 sales multiples um, and very healthy, you know, 30 to 40% operating margins. Um, and, you know, you can then back out a multiple of that. So, and all of those companies are still grow are growing at kind of 15 to 25%. Um, so then you've got a company that's growing at, say, 60, 70%. And you go, okay, well, if it's revenue you can get to here, we know what that's going to look like maturity when they're kind of happy to slow down that growth or the growth naturally slows down and they, they spend less on marketing. Um they grind out efficiencies. Um, and so we think they can sustain a multiple of whatever it is, five, seven, eight, ten. Um, and historically, these the mid-tier ones typically trade at, you know, five to eight or four to eight. In Australia, a lot of them seem to be trading at two to three at the moment. Um, but they're lost making businesses. There is, there is, there's more logic to it than it seems. It's very easy to dismiss. But it's also kind of like going back to that Disney example, like how do you value saying that they're losing a billion dollars in a business is clearly the wrong way to value something like disney plus you know you can't you cannot take a cash flow um today's cash flow you cannot look at today's cash flow and draw conclusions into the future um you have to kind of think about where it will be uh and how big it could get and and actually that one's kind of an interesting one because you think about on a very long-term perspective the advantage of having a direct pipeline from your fans to your own accounts very, that that could be huge for them. It could be a major part of their business in the future. Um, so look, yeah, that's that's kind of how we'd look at it. You're always you're always going to come against this problem in these these kinds of businesses in the sense that they're spending money, but you can also see that they're growing. You can see the value that's being creating. You can see the customers. You can see the price rises. Um, so to say that they're not worth anything and it's all one big Ponzi scheme is is as ludicrous as saying that Rivian is worth a hundred billion dollars you know and that's kind of like that's where the market is today where they're really valuing or certainly you know two months ago certainly valuing those things at next to nothing and the people that saw them all as ponzi's as scams literally there's a lot of people who consider the whole industry that does that like a scam which you know ponzi scheme which is not true even though they do need to raise money consistently they are growing they are delivering economic value um you're always gonna it's, it's always gonna be a challenging thing and, and i guess uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, how would you look at it as a private equity? <clears throat> well, it's pretty similar to what you described. So and I think the way you described it is similar to what I said before around, you know, you just fast forward and you look at, you know, what you think they can achieve in terms of growth based on, you know, you know broader market dynamics and what they've achieved historically. And then, you know, ultimately um, where they can end up in terms of cash generation and and, and, and cash EBITDA. Um, and, and obviously that's not, you know, today they might be massively loss making, but that's because they're investing into that growth, and you just got to kind of understand where where ultimately lands and when, and, and what that ultimately means for for your returns. But then that entry price becomes, you know, 
quite important um and it's very hard even if you kind of back growth to invest in something at a really elevated um you know valuation because you know who knows we can kind of exit um it ultimately and, and normally switches to exiting um you know at, at a, an ebitda multiple or or, or mm. some other kind of um you know cash um m- you know multiple of cash because you know revenue multiples are really a at best a heuristic for like a, a, a loss making business and and it's it's a relevant kind of heuristic and people kind of forget in a bull market kind of very much focus on that but ultimately um you know that's that, that may well not be your exit valuation um you know i think to kind of steel man um the arguments against you know the netflix i think you're you know, i think you're saying basically you find us correctly you know the, the whole cohort of people who kind of think streaming's a big ponzi and you know, the like i think i think their implicit argument is that they won't be able to generate the growth and the margins they can a growth because of you know penetration even if they get the growth it'll be a low margin because of competition and they won't have the pricing power and then b and importantly there's just this never-ending um you know beast you've got to feed in terms of capex and, and content production that's just a monster and that they'll never get to mm. that um cash generation point or take way longer i think that's the implicit argument yeah. that's like the strong version of, I mean, of the argument that they're saying well we never invest in netflix and the reason for that is you know they kind of showed ebitda but it's like as you say there's a huge spend on content and i then amortize that which i think is the wrong way like if you're making content every year and that's what you need to um to keep people on i feel like that's like the, the expense that you're incurring this year to run your business um, I don't think you can really amortize that. I think that the library has that much as much value as you know. That, but that but the market just looks through that, and it just effectively just takes you know what is the kind of um, yeah. post-capitalized you know what's the cash sheet, but they they kind of get that. Yeah. The question is when does it kind of get to you know start spitting out cash rather than consuming it? Yeah, look, I'll, t- I'll tell you one that we got wrong, and it's very painful to talk about. Um, one one that we got really wrong was um was Twilio. So we backed it pretty early. It's one of those ones that went ballistic. Uh, this is one that we actually did sell out of. So we did make money on, but then sadly at some point, you know, it dropped 50, 60% and bought back in. And then a series of, then then the results just that kept coming out were just ugly. Like the business had clearly deteriorated. Um, so this example of, and I think it's a really good example because it's highlighting what's going on in the tech space. And it's also giving a guide as to what's going to recover first and what won't. So Twilio in the last quarter, they lost $320 million. Right, almost all of that was non-cash, stock-based comp, um, and that's that's obviously like over what like what one point two billion analyzed loss. So what business is that that is losing a billion dollars a year? Like that is a staggering loss, and you know you, it doesn't really matter the fact that it's trading at some crazy low multiple. Um, you also look at share count and it's absolutely exploded. Now we, I was looking at our models from must be in like twenty eighteen on this on this company. Um, and you know, we, the growth actually beat, you know, we assumed growth would fade down. We did assume there'd be operating margin by 2022, that that'd be at least that like a first level of profitability. Instead, you've got a company losing 300 mil a quarter. Now there's like, I got asked a question the other day. I was like, oh, is there, are these, are there zombie companies? Like the, the guy, somebody's very focused on like the debt crisis, blah, blah, blah. You know, low interest rates creates debt, debt zombies because there's companies that can't, wouldn't be able to service their debt if interest rates were higher, but they can because they're lower. Um, but they also can't really grow. They're also, you know, they're zombies. They'll, they'll die if interest rates rise too much. Um, I think there is equivalent here. And like, I don't want to, I don't want to cast too much shade on Twilio because obviously th- there's reasons to like it. I understand the bull case because we used to own it. Um, and they may well continue to grow and generate operating margins and the multiple could expand. 
Um, that could easily happen. But I do think companies like that that are losing hundreds of millions of dollars a quarter, but they're not losing cash. Like they're just issuing stock. But then that's hundreds of millions of dollars of stock that's going to employees every three months that when it vests, the employees will certainly be selling. So you're going to need a new set of buyers. And that's kind of, I guess, where the Ponzi scheme idea comes. But again, I think that's too strong, way too strong for what they're doing. But I do wonder if there's like some kind of zombie element where these companies can survive because they can just keep issuing stock. Um, but they're losing economic value. They're losing on a gap basis. If you actually do the accounting, they're losing 320 million plus a year. Um, you could see, and, and there's been a huge rally in the last few months and Twilio is basically at its lows. And there's a number, I've got a long list of companies um, like that. Um, and I think they will be the last ones to recover from this. And they'll really have to show some operating margin or people, even people willing to look out many years in advance, they're just not going to be interested. But that's not universal, by the way, in the tech space. That's... Yeah, I, I don't have a particular view on on, on Twilio. I, I think it is just as simple as, you know, after capitalization and stock-based comp and all that funny business, you know, is there a pathway to profitability? And, and if you're backing a, a longer pathway because there's a massive revenue land grab, that's fine. Or you, if you want to be very clear around, um, you know, that pathway to profitability or, you know, do the unit economics not make sense or is the competition too fierce? I think it's very rare for a company in Twilio's position where it is based, you know, it's principally a software business and with its gross margins to to not be able to kind of get to profit if, if it wanted to. Um, you know, maybe it needs to, to cart or whatever i i, I have not looked at Twitter. i i don't have a view but uh but it's but it's an interesting question look I, i'm conscious i'm conscious of time um uh i think you know we this was this was super fun i know we've spoken about a whole bunch of um subjects and it's kind of veered across um you know the us and australia and uh, i think you know very keen to see how um how this evolves how this evolves and, and and try new things. Is there anything, and, and also, by the way, get, getting new folks on and, and seeing who else we can have a conversation with. Is there anything else we should uh, chat about before uh, before we wrap up? I've got a few things I want to talk about, but maybe we'll leave them for, for, for the next episode. Awesome. Um, but that was fun. Thanks, Misha. I think uh, we should definitely keep doing this. Oh, that was heaps fun. Let's, uh, let's see where it takes us.